Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I'm Nicole Abshire. Okay, y'all, we have a really awesome episode for you. Today, we are talking to Dr. Lori Green, who is a professor at UT, and she's a historian. I'm just so glad that we were able to find a historian to help us understand the history of hunger in America, because there is quite a history here that I didn't know. Nicole, I'm not, I don't think you knew it either. Like We were both very just ignorant to where we are now and how we got here. And Lori knows so much about this. So she was an incredible guest, such a wealth of knowledge. She is currently working on a book called The Discover of Hunger in America, A Site of Public Crisis of Race, Health, and American Democracy. So, I mean, right off the bat, when we heard that title, we're like, she would be perfect. She's come on exactly the show. who we need to talk to. Yes. So there's lots of thoughts still ringing in my head. Nicole, what are some of your like key takeaways? Well, goodness gracious. So many of these episodes find me in an emotional place. And so here's my little forewarning, everybody. This is another one of those moments. So I have a bit of an emotional, shall we call it breakdown, emotional moment within the episode. And I'm still kind of processing through that for sure. And I hope that we talk about it more in the mini But what Lori does such an amazing job of is contextualizing all of the history around what we now call food insecurity, but other times has been called starvation, has been called hunger. The wealth of her knowledge is incredible. And I feel so fortunate that we got to hear from her to really understand where we come from and hopefully let that provide some wisdom about where we are right now. Yes, absolutely. And as a reminder, the thing that triggered our thought on even talking about hunger in Texas, hunger, food insecurity, is the fact that Nicole and I will be hosting a South by Southwest panel in the civic engagement track called Hunger Games, who is winning in our broken system. So we are speaking to those who are going to be on our panel. Unfortunately, Lori was unable to be a panelist. We were really hoping that would happen, but her schedule had a conflict. But she's on the podcast. So y'all get to hear that conversation and learn with us more about this very important issue that the more we talk about it, the more I'm realizing needs more attention. I can't believe that we don't talk about this more. So check out this episode with Dr. Lori Green. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We are really excited to be speaking with Lori Green today about hunger in America. She's a historian who works at UT and she's such a wealth of knowledge. So we're so excited to get into this. So hello, Lori. How are you doing? Hello. Good morning. I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, we've talked a few times leading up to this. And every time we talk, my brain is just like running in a bunch of directions because you spark so many great thoughts. So I'm glad we get to talk on the podcast and share these conversations with our listeners. But in the beginning of the show, we love to talk about who our guest is, get to know them a little bit better. So can you tell us, are you from Texas? Where did you grow up? I actually grew up for my first 17 years in New Jersey where my 
parents were involved with civil rights from when I was tiny. And actually, I mean, related to this, they were also somewhat involved with the farm worker movement. So farm workers who might have migrated from Florida and then wound up in New Jersey or Long Island or come from Texas and gone over to Florida and then gone up. So I was raised with a lot of consciousness, though I have to say I grew up in one of those suburbs near Newark. Fellow suburb, suburb gal, (laughs) but outside of Dallas, but it was really very, I don't want to diss my hometown because there's a great online group. But for me, I really loved being close to New York City and some other places and really loved to travel. (laughs) So it it sounds like your parents were pretty civically involved. And I'm assuming that y'all talked about politics. Was that the case growing up? Absolutely. Yeah. Gosh, years later, I met a friend who would come over for dinner and she said she loved coming for dinner because we were always talking about politics and she knew nothing. And then it was so exciting to come to dinner at our house. And I had an interesting experience that made a big impact on me as well. I was part of the very first women's studies class in New Jersey. And the woman who taught it I had to get special permission because I was a freshman. It was for sophomores. And that person, Betty Wilson, then ran to be a state rep. And so I was like passionate about that. And then I got like very, I was a young person and I got kind of bummed out about the way the legislature worked because there were all these trade-offs and bill to the other. And so I started thinking that there needed to be some other ways of social change. Is, so I'm curious, is that what drew, well, what drew you to become a historian? Like, what was it about that path that was interesting to you? Well, I don't want to talk too long about this, but it did lead to me going to college at Westland and having all these questions about how do things change? And I remember kind of interviewing someone from several different departments to say, how does your department address this question? (laughs) And I wound up doing something that I called political sociology, which I learned from some really great people, but it also didn't have a lot of requirements. So I got to take other things and I did some big projects there and I got to the end and I thought it's all about history because if we come up with these kind of fixed concepts about the world is always like this, then we have this great analysis, but it doesn't help us understand that there's a past and the present and a potential future. So then it was just all about history to me. Although before I went to graduate school, I was working as a community organizer. I came out of college and I was ready to sort of hit the ground. Never thought I would go to graduate school. (laughs) Well, we hear that the phrase, like those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. And it's it's honestly kind of a cliche at this point because we just hear it so commonly. But I'm curious, like when you hear that, what dings for you? Or do you feel anything when you hear that? Well, I think that it's just crucial for people to know their history. And I think that currently my students are mostly 18 to 22, but I also have a lot of older students. And when I'm teaching women's history or which one component of would be the history of reproductive justice or my civil rights classes, I know that there's a real influx of students who really want to know how did we get here and are sort of stunned 
to find out that some of the struggles that we think might think are new were also struggles of the past. But I would say that as a historian, I hear people that talk about cycles of history. There's always these cycles of history. So hunger might be a cycle that always happens, but there's a sense of inevitability about that. And so I think it's just so important to understand that things might look the same, there might be similar struggles, but that we're in a really different context. And so the current generation has the burden of having some really successful movements and then having to deal with, well, why was there retrogression? How did we get to where we are now? So that history doesn't always, I'm always talking about this, history doesn't always go like this, which we expect it to do. We expect there to be this constant modernization, everything's gonna get better. And I actually think that if I were to find a word that sent me to graduate school, it would be retrogression, that history doesn't just go forward. So the phrase of doomed to repeat, it didn't quite come to mind, but I will say, if you don't mind my going on and on here, right? I will say that people that I interviewed for my first book really had a sense that if you stop the movement, if you stop activism and you take for granted what you achieved, that you may very well go backwards. So people, a lot of people said that. And when you look at something like re reproductive justice, I think that we see that in a sense. And also I think that there's a way in which what I think people would call now food justice, there was a similar sort of taking for granted what actually got won through really difficult struggles. But I started out after college at, a, at in activism that in a certain sense came out of those movements around food and hunger. Yeah, I love that. That makes me think something I feel like I hear a lot now is that democracy is a muscle. You have to flex it. It doesn't just stay static. It's something that you have to work on. It's, yes, <clears throat> triggering that thought. And it is true. Like we assume it's going to be there to our detriment sometimes. <laughs> like we do have to participate. And that's a big mission of our show is to help people understand what is currently happening, what has happened and why we need to be active participants. I think that's right on, Claire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to put a lot together. Let's talk about hunger and food insecurity. And the thing that Nicole and I would love to start with is just understanding the language around how we talk about people who are hungry, starvation. We think language is really important to help us understand the way we understand something. So can you help us like outline? It sounds like right now what we hear a lot about is food insecurity. Is that like a newer term that's, that people are using to talk about this issue? So my research for the book that I'm working on, the big title is Hungry in America, and it focuses largely on sort of the mid 60s to the late 70s. Right. And food security wasn't a term then. Food security was a term that developed in the Clinton administration in the early 90s. And people who had actually had a history in working on food issues, a new part of government that was focused specifically on food issues, they wanted to come up with an objective measurement. So hunger is not something that you can objectively measure. It's a different kind of term. It does other work. So they wanted to have an objective measurement, a way to count. So food security, technically what they're talking or food insecurity is how many months 
in a particular household, was there insufficient food? And so then they come up with statistics and they look at them from different perspectives, like region or state or factors like race, for instance. And so we can look at that. It's different language than in the 60s. Absolutely. And also, I would just comment two things on that. I personally think that it's very important. And I've talked to people who help create that term and that we're looking over some years for how are we going to objectively measure this so we can fight about it. But one is that it doesn't explain why and it doesn't kind of have any politics to it. And it also separates health and food, so health and access to food. And when I talked to one of the people who helped come up with that term, he explained that in terms of the way our government is organized, it's complicated because food programs are all under the United States Department of Agriculture and health is under health and human services. And I'm real concerned because in the 60s, I think what, and 70s, what really moved people was that health and hunger were almost, I mean, they were right together. And it was not only physical health, but also mental health and the sense of brain development. And could people learn? Could people become good citizens? Those sorts of questions. So having said that about food security and that coming from the 90s, just to go back, the terms that I've found in my research are starvation and hunger and malnutrition. And they have different histories and different valences, different meanings to people. I think that hunger would have been a primary term in the 1930s as well during the Depression. But then malnutrition also was important at the time for physical development. And the school lunch program actually came out of finding out how many people were malnourished or undernourished and couldn't participate as GIs during the war. Okay, so up to the 60s, the first word that was really used by activists whose communities were experiencing a real lack of access to nutritious food. So the sustaining of well-being. Can I ask a quick question, though? Because I'm now having this thought now that I understand this a little bit better. So food insecurity is used to measure how much food a family has. Are they talking about nutritious food or just about food? Like it doesn't not really categorizing what kind of food it is. Well, my understanding is that it's amounts of food. Does your cupboard have food in it or not? And I also, I want to jump into, before we move past, I know we're going, we're sort of in the 90s and then we're going to go back, but just kind of my impressions as a lay person, right, who's just learning about all this stuff is that terminology, food security slash food insecurity feels very distant. There's something about it to me that just doesn't feel very personal or not very moving. And so I think that's really interesting just to think about the way that we think about it. But really, I guess what I'm getting at is don't think about it these days, I think does have something to do with that sort of distant term 
that is sort of the in thing to use to describe this problem. So yeah, I just I guess I want to point out that how important language is, and I can feel sort of the effect I think that it's had on me and my lack of thought about the urgency of this particular issue. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I know in part you must be doing your show because of the invisibility of a real crisis again in America. And I think there is a distance in that, in those statistics. And like I said, that it doesn't get at the why. And there's a distance from personal experience and what people are contending with. And it might be that you'd like me to develop this more later, but it also doesn't deal with the ideological developments since the 1970s that bit by bit have made people less sympathetic. So there was a slice of time when a lot of Americans were very concerned that there could be hunger in this country having been sort of raised to think that this was the exceptional country and hunger was in other countries and that we were supposed to send them food. And so to discover that here and then the kind of attention to that and the narratives about that were to really humanize people and to say, these are other citizens and they focused a lot on children. But since then, there's been a lot of ideology that makes people unsympathetic unless that's really brought to their attention. And so people are lazy or whatnot. And I think that going forward, that to fight over these issues, it really has to bring that into account. Really need, we need to hear voices and sort of look at that history and be aware of it. Yeah, the thing I'm thinking about, and we we're learning about this in our discussion with Celia Cole, the CEO from Feeding Texas, is that one in eight Texans is food insecure, which is a lot staggering. And then I learned recently, I do a lot of work in my local school district in Del Valley ISD. The student body is 91% economically disadvantaged. And I was like, that is, again, like an incredible amount. And yet it feels invisible. Like I see these kids going to school with my son and I don't see that what I guess I would consider malnutrition or starvation. So it feels like Nicole saying, is it really there? Like, is this really a problem? Well, I'm curious why (laughs) that's the case. But from your perspective, can you tell us about some of these historical moments where let's hunger was discovered, where people were awoken to the crisis that existed and maybe still exists in this country? Sure. And I want to comment just on what you said before, because I think that something cracked open in terms of visibility with COVID, with the pandemic. Because remember, it was a big deal that the school lunch program would continue to provide lunches so that people could come and pick them up. And I think there was even maybe mentioned that oftentimes parents or other people in the family, that it might be helpful to them as well, because and this is true when there's so much focus on children, we might not realize that parents might tighten their belts so that their kids can eat. So I think that COVID kind of people who were having really rough experiences, including people of color and working class people, or general, that pressure kind of opened stuff up a little bit. 
so that people began to see. And so this is a time to really act. Okay, historical. Okay, so it didn't come from above, right? It didn't just come from politicians. So yes, John Kennedy, when he was running for president and went to West Virginia, saw all these people who were subsisting on supplemental commodities, which were poor nutrition and never enough. And he's the one who actually piloted the food stamps program, which is now called SNAP and is a little bit different. And yes, President Johnson, whose mission was the war on poverty, that was what he most wanted to be known for. And it was under him that the food stamps program as an alternative to supplemental commodities or nothing, that that became legislation right after the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. So yes, that's all true. It's also true that a Senate subcommittee went to Mississippi and observed just really dire hunger and obvious malnutrition. And by that, by obvious, I mean the most physical signs that we usually associate with other places such as kwashiorkor, visible through the extended bellies of children. So witnessing some of that and sores on children or thinning hair, those kinds of signs of malnutrition. So yes, these senators. But the reason that the senators were there, and this is often, this is missed, is that this was in the area of the voting rights movement and the area that also there was a labor movement for higher daily wages, for people who were picking cotton. And so they were the reasons that these senators even came to Mississippi. And what was happening there was that, so there's supplemental commodities, nothing, or food stamps. And at the time in USDA, federal food programs, counties could choose nothing or supplemental commodities which I can say a little bit more about, or food stamps. And food stamps, everyone had to pay for. And it, it took up until the late 1970s for that those prices to actually disappear. So if someone was really bereft, I mean, if, if they had no work and they had no money, they absolutely could not pay the month ahead fees, even if that was like five bucks. So it was being consigned to hunger and people were really worried about their parents. And so what, I mean, their children. So what was happening is that with them bringing attention, the supervisors from counties who were, might also be planters, were saying, okay, we're going to implement the food stamp program, right? And there was increasing unemployment in the area because of mechanization and cotton and so these newly voting African-Americans were saying to vote people out of office and absolutely perceived this as a kind of punishment. If you're not employed by us anymore and now you're voting, we want you to leave the state. And so there was a real struggle and they used the word starvation. And as I mentioned to you when we were talking before, it wasn't just a physical question, something that happens. It was the nominalization of a verb. And what that means is to take the verb to starve and turning it into a noun, starvation. So in other words, it's a process and they saw it as something being done to them. It was never just a natural thing like, oh, we have a drought, we have no food, right? So starvation 
was their language. And what happened is that when this Senate subcommittee came back and they had to present this to Congress, it had people like Bobby Kennedy, most famously in this committee. They use the term hunger verging on starvation to present that. And there was a lot of hullabaloo about that, of denials and by Mississippi senators and congressmen. And a lot, there were a lot of investigations and different kinds of investigations and media productions. So for instance, there was this backing up to hunger as something that was sort of depoliticized and was very humanizing. People could sort of identify with hunger, even if they hadn't experienced long-term hunger, and they could worry about their children. That could be my child. So that, for instance, the CBS broadcast documentary started out as Hunger American Style. That was going to be the name. And by the time it was shown in May of 1968, so almost a year after this sort of discovery by the senators, it was called Hunger in America. Okay, so that's starvation and hunger just continued to be used. And then malnutrition. So as these senators from Mississippi and elsewhere were denying that was a problem, that like 6 million people, households were going without enough food. The first people to go and help document that was this group of kind of activist doctors. And they went down to Mississippi and did a survey and they documented the signs, the symptoms of severe malnutrition and could identify then what was causing it. And their focus of malnutrition was both physical, so what was happening to children's bodies, but also the impact on brain development. And I can go into that more if you'd like. Maybe we'll talk about the beginnings of WIC. So that was the question of whether these students could learn in school and become sort of normal citizens. So there you have hunger and malnutrition and starvation, political, not political, but all kind of experiential that people I think could relate to and all really connected inadequate food with health, It'd be food stamps or supplemental commodities. So, Lori, it would be wonderful if you could talk to us about the supplemental commodities program. Okay. It's really very important to this history. And just as a reminder that I always need to keep in mind is that at the point where this crisis became visible to a much larger audience around 67 and 68, there was this choice in counties, cities of supplemental commodities or food stamps or nothing. So there were a whole lot of counties with nothing, with no backup at all. Something that we, it's hard to imagine at this point, though perhaps we should imagine that things could go there. But anyway, so there were those three. So supplemental commodities, whereas food stamps was became a program in 1964. Surplus commodities goes all the way back to the 1930s and not about hunger. So we know that during the depression and the stock market crash and in agriculture, that there was this glut, this is a market term <laughs> of wheat and other commodities. So to keep American prices up, the government actually asked farmers to produce less, but they also actually bought 
commodities from growers and then use those commodities to then distribute for free to people in need. So that was free. But since it was surplus commodities, it definitely was not nutritious food, meat, or which even if one is a vegetarian, we have so many options for protein, but they did not. And meat is a very concentrated form of protein. But anyway, not that, not intensively farmed vegetables. So it was more like wheat and rice and lard and sugar. So these major commodities and they would be processed. So into flour, whatnot, and then distributed at a distribution point, people would come and get those, but because they didn't have that, so they had calories, but they didn't have nutrition. And so that had dire consequences particularly for children. So surplus commodities did that and they ran out. And so this was affecting all kinds of groups. You probably know that hunger in America, this CBS broadcast focused on poor white people, on Native Americans, on African-Americans, on Mexican-Americans. So this was really had major consequences. So let me know if I'm understanding this correctly. So in the 1930s, there was the surplus commodities program, I guess you could call it. So if folks needed food, they could access that food if it was a part of their county government. And then time goes on. And then we start to see like the pilot program of food stamps in the 1960s. Is that right? The very beginning, Kennedy does that for just a small number of counties. Okay. And then it wasn't until later in the 60s that the, the public had attention that surplus commodities and this beginning of food stamps is not nearly enough to really help provide nutritious foods for people. Is that kind of the timeline? Right. So it was a horrible choice. Well, the nothing obviously was a horrible choice, but then the surplus commodities meant malnutrition because of lack of protein and other nutrients. And then food stamps might mean no food, so not even calories. Because in the beginning, you had to pay for food stamps. Right. And that could actually lead to marasmus, which is the most deadly form of malnutrition. So I'm curious, because Nicole and I both watched Hunger in America, which, wow, it was a shocking documentary and its bluntness about the problem. And I can see how it really shook Americans to really reckon with what we have here in this country. Was that really like a pivotal turning point, that piece of media, or was it that in combination with other things? Well, there were these investigations going on. For instance, in the summer of 1967, there was a group organized called the Citizens Board of Inquiry on Hunger and Malnutrition in the United States. And there had been publicity when these senators came back and they had these hearings where there was this incredible sparring between the public health people and politicians in Mississippi and then this group that was bringing this to light. So there was a lot of media around that. Then there were all these investigations going on and media productions based on that. So one of the biggest ones was something, a photo essay by the photographer Al Clayton and Bill Hedgepath, the writer for Look Magazine, did this investigation in Mississippi. And it was just so dramatic. And it came out for the Christmas issue of Look Magazine, which for people who don't know Look is like Life Magazine. So photo heavy, glossy magazine format came out for the Christmas issue. And it had more response 
than anything like that that they had ever published. The letters just put in to the point that the family that was being focused on, they found this family, this girl, Teresa Pilgrim, that they focused on outside of Yazoo City, Mississippi. And the mom, Mrs. Pilgrim, actually had to write in and ask that they not forward all the mail to her because she couldn't keep up with responding. So that was the biggest thing in 67. And then CBS, based on the findings of the Citizens Board, and then their own investigations and obviously traveling to different places and filming. I got a chance to interview Peter Davis, who was a co-producer on that film and the producer of Hearts and Minds, a famous documentary about the Vietnam War. And he explained what it was like to go to different places. They went to San Antonio, the west side of San Antonio, which was Mexican-Americans, a very poor neighborhood, and this priest, Ralph Ruiz, was living in the community and helping people and helping to bring attention. So he's in that film. They went to a Navajo reservation. They went to not Appalachia. They didn't want to go to Appalachia or Mississippi that were kind of like synonymous with hunger. They wanted to go to other places, though they were on the South. So it was an area in Virginia, and they were looking at people who had been tenant farmers and now were out of work, so poor whites. And then they went to Hale County in Alabama, which was people were just destitute because of this mechanization and scared of what would happen if they spoke out. So went to those areas and filmed. And as you said, I mean, the film is so compelling and it is very up close and personal. They do these interviews and the camera zooms in, I mean, to the point where you can, you're looking into the eyes and looking at the bodies and the feelings. I think that when a couple of the children, really teenagers, talked about how ashamed they were. There was a boy named Charles in Hale County who talked about going to school and they had school lunches, but you had to pay for them. There was no free lunch. So his parents couldn't have lunch. So he would have peas, like sort of like beans, I guess we would call them for breakfast. And then he talks about how he just would have to sit there while other children ate their lunches. And he was asked, how did you feel about that? And he said he was ashamed. And that led to an utter flood, again, of letters that went to congressmen and to CBS. And they actually said that it was more reaction that they had ever gotten for a documentary like that. And I think that people use the word shock all the time. And I think at the time, it was just absolutely a shock because they had associated hunger with, say, India or parts of Africa or Central America. So they had seen that perhaps on the on news and news shows. And they had just always understood that we were free of that. So it was just a shock to see the conditions. But it was that human feeling and like, this could be my child that really stirred people up. I just should say that it wasn't a shock to poor people. So we're talking people that did have enough to eat, who were the targeted audience for these shows to get people riled up. Before we move on, I think maybe after this would be a good point to talk about WIC and some of the programs that we did get because of that public outcry. Nicole, do you have, what are some of your thoughts? Because you watched it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I did. But I had to watch it in bits. It was a rough watch, but I also felt like it was necessary. So for folks listening, it is available on the CBS website. It was, I guess, a CBS production. Yeah, it is. And I was really surprised by how, frankly, hard-hitting it was. I thought Charles Corralt was actually very direct about what the issues were. They talked straight on about the Supplemental Commodities Program and how it fell short. And I understand that it was never meant to address hunger anyway, but they were they explained it really well. They also really got into the nitty gritty bits about food stamps and how uh, just showing the woman in Alabama who was talking about how she couldn't afford food stamps. There was just no way. There was no way that she could have two weeks worth of money to purchase them, much less a month was really compelling. So for folks who are really wanting to understand on a real ground level what we're talking about, that documentary will really bring it home. It is incredibly difficult to watch. I'm really torn because I think it's so important to really see like what we're talking about. And I know that this was 1968. Uh-oh. Sorry, getting worked up. But I mean, within the first few minutes, they show like the death of a baby. It's a really hard thing to watch, but also I think necessary. I think what I'm really torn about is that while I think it's necessary, I wonder about sort of the lines of like showing the truth, but also sort of not violating people's dignity. I think there's a lot for me that I'm still kind of parsing through because it's like I feel like we sort of need an updated version to understand what this is like now for people. But I also think that there are things that are said and done within the context of a 1968 documentary that I don't know that we would do anymore. So I don't know. I, just, I have a lot of thoughts about it. And I think it's really important. I think that we could use some sort of updating that really contextualizes what hunger is like now. And at the same time, I also, of course, want to be respectful and mindful about people getting to live in with dignity, which is also why, sorry, oh man, it's really hard. But I really respected your writing, Lori, where you talked about, where you really always are emphasizing the connection between activism and self-determination and bringing light to these issues. And so I guess, I think maybe that would be a window in a way to update what hunger looks like now is if it could be told through the eyes of people experiencing it in their voices in the way that they would want to be presented. So that's what I want to say. It's very powerful. One thing that I want to say about that is, well, let me just des describe a little bit what people will see. So back then, you didn't just bring like your phone or just a video camera. They had really heavy equipment, big, heavy equipment that they had to bring to places. And in Hale County, that was particularly hard too. That's where Let Us Now Praise Famous Men What was also the photographs by James Agee and Walker Evans. Text and photographs were from there, from the very early 40s, if I'm not mistaken. And they spent time with people. So they didn't just like come in for a day, film people like you are nothing. You are just an object for our cameras. They spent time with people. That's something that I got the sense of from Peter Davis. And... Also, so I really understand what you're saying. They go into people's houses, and I think that I'm not sure that would happen these days. But I think 
there's another side to it that just needs to be remembered without necessarily saying we should do this now, is that the way that the crew found places to go was because there was activism. It's not at all in the film. I think that it didn't fit the narrative that they wanted to put out there of we need to go help people. But for instance, in San Antonio, in my research, I found out that there had been these hearings that took place. So Father Ruiz, who was involved with this activism, with people who were, say, welfare rights activists and other poor people's activism and Chicano people, went to a hearing organized by the Citizens Board and spoke out. So when they were looking for whom to film, they went to this group and Father Ruiz brought people to this hearing and the hearing transcripts are actually available. And so you can see that people, that some of the questions were just, what is in your cupboard today? And what did you have for dinner last night? Right. But that people wanted to express their situation. And they talked about particularly about how demeaned they were so indignant, no matter where they were, about how they were treated by welfare, by social workers or by whatever the powers that be that they were seeing. They were so disrespected. And so here they are speaking and seen in very different ways. So you so one respects them. And I think it's important. Film theory usually will see people like that as victims. But I think it's really important to see that they wanted to be part. They were volunteering because they wanted people to know and to do something about it because they did not have the power to do something about it. So this was part of their activism. And several years ago, I started working with someone who was in a humanities media project at the UT. This didn't come through, but I had begun to work with him on a documentary for today that would bring history with today, like going to Yazoo City and finding out what was going on with there in relationship to that history. And some of the people that I talked to were very helpful and were referring me to others. And again, really felt that attention should come to that. I don't think that they would have invited people into their houses. I think that they would have seen that as not to make a pun out of this, but crossing a threshold that would have been embarrassing to them. Well, let's look at the pitiful inside of this house. So I think there's a more complicated way of understanding these. Now, there was a documentary done a number of years ago called The Place at the Table. And I don't know, it wasn't moving in the same way. I wonder if it's just that there's so much media out there today. It focused a lot on kids because of the recession then and the hardships that were, people were going through. There was a lot of focus on these would be normal people if it weren't for this recession and what's happening to people. So it wasn't as effective, unfortunately. Thank you for pointing that out really tying in the activism part of it, because now I feel very recovered. I don't feel as emotionally distraught because you reminded me that visibility is such an important part of any movement and that people were expressing maybe their agency by allowing themselves to be seen and that that was an important part of the movement. So I think, thank you for helping me to get that. 
Right. And also because of this ideology that's so disrespecting, for instance, toward obesity, right? Like talk of you shouldn't get benefits because of obesity. Well, obesity is a result of poor nutrition, only having access to carbs and not being able to afford fresh vegetable or whatever. And so there's a lot of malignment of people that are experiencing these things. And so to be interviewing people and to really be listening to them, I think is there's something important about that. I want to transition just a little bit. Well, this is kind of connected to what we're discussing, Lori, but you shared a chapter with us. Well, the chapter is called Poor Mothers and the War on Poverty. Can you remind me what this is from? I think it's saving babies for two dimes a day. And it was right on what was going on during the war on poverty. So it was a chapter in a book that was edited by Annalise Orlek and Lisa Hygerian of authors that were trying to take a new look at the war on poverty. So not just like what LBJ did, but looking at it at the community level. So we're doing that. So it was the war on poverty, a new grassroots history. So this was a chapter. Yeah. I mean, it was eye-opening. I learned a lot about a lot, but there's a line that stuck out that I would like to get your thoughts on. The line was that the battle against hunger has become a crucible in which activists and poor people, public officials and medical professionals struggle over the meaning of American democracy and the future of U.S. society. Can you give us your thoughts on that? I mean, I know the book you're working on kind of touches on these elements. Can you talk about this battle of hunger and how it plays into American democracy? Yeah. And why it was seen as a crisis. That that would be a great title. I forgot about that line. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> but it really, in a certain sense, it captures the essence of the book that I'm writing. What people said at the time, like journalists, was that hunger had been elevated to the point that by 1969, it was the biggest domestic issue. So on a parallel with Vietnam as like a foreign policy issue. Like that's how big it was. And so there was a lot of media coverage. But in people writing in, a lot of people were saying, what is America if we can't take care of our poor people? And questioning the very foundations of America and in some cases of capitalism, why were the people who were working so far hard not necessarily able to have enough food and letting children die so the question of who has a voice, who makes policy, and what is this nation founded on? Do we have equality and justice for all? So it was symbolic of much more. And I think that's why it drove people. And doubtful about the meaning of that right now, what the test of democracy is, for instance, is what happened on January 6th of 2021 is much more of what we're hearing about, but it was seen as a real crisis that just opened up these discussions. We don't want to take up too much more of your time, but as we're wrapping up, I mean, as a historian, as someone who was once a community organizer, I believe you said, what have you seen, I guess, historically, and what do you think would be good programs for systemic change to help us address hunger? It's still with us. I mean, Maybe not to the degree it was. I mean, I don't even know. Is it still as bad as it was? Like, again, it comes back to that visibility. And I feel like I have such ignorance in this area. But I know that one in eight Texans is food insecure. So there's definitely a high need. First of all, if I could back up historically a little bit, I want to say that because of activism at a lot of different levels, 
So at the grassroots, in medical fields, where they did a lot of research and had to prove at that time that intelligence, brain development, that they were connected in infants and young children, that they were connected to nutrition and not to some inherent issues of race. The doctors were involved with proving that and testified to Congress about that. So people were active on a lot of different levels. And because of that, this persistence that a lot was won. So food stamps was, had to be an option every county in the United States on a set level. So it wasn't decided by anyone local. It couldn't be connected to respect or disrespect. So everybody who was at a certain level of the poverty line, so some bit over the poverty line and not higher, were able to get food stamps and they were able to get them for free. So th those were huge developments. And it was made into kind of the most recent entitlement program, which is often in Congress, it's really by conservatives, it's dis the idea of an entitlement program, you feel entitled. But what it meant was that everyone who is at this level is entitled to have access to food stamps. Again, what is SNAP? There's limitations on SNAP today. So that was huge achievement. And then the WIC program, the Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, never existed before. And it came out of activism at the grassroots, activism by doctors, and then finally by the Senate Committee for Nutrition and Human Needs that was headed by George McGovern. And Hubert Humphrey was part of it. And it was based on using coupons to get supplemental food for pregnant and postnatal women and infants and young children, so before school age. And it had a huge impact on infant mortality rates. And so that can't be overlooked, like the achievements. Now, I will say that they weren't quite what grassroots activists wanted because they didn't want to have to necessarily like stand in line to get them have everything set, the terms set by the government. They really thought that they were the ones that knew what nutrition there was needed and that they would just like the money and be able to use it as they saw fit. And there were stipulations put in the legislation that kind of shocked me and showed me how ideological this whole was. So a concern, for instance, that coupons might be traded for drugs. So there's this layer of ideology from the 1970s that was kind of new at the time. So there were all these achievements. So part of what we need to do now is preserve those achievements because there are threats. So in the last say decade or a little more than a decade, there were proposals when Republicans were in control of the House to, for instance, take food stamps and put caps on how much a state could use money for food stamps or the number of people that could be served. So put caps on that or to block grant food programs with other kinds of human services so that a state would get a certain amount of money and it would then be up to that state on how they use the money, which could lead to saying, well, we're not to food stamps because we'd rather do this. And so those are real threats. And so the fighting needs to be both 
to preserve and also to expand. And I think that in the whole basis of your podcast is to make this visible, like this is so important or audible, perhaps podcast. So that exposure and there are some projects, there's a lot of projects to deal with food security and to eliminate food deserts where people will have to pay more at small stores because there's no grocery store and grocery stores will specifically move out of certain areas on purpose. We've known about that for a long time. But as I was saying before, I think that the struggle needs to occur on different levels and in ways that are not just lobbying and not just giving out food. So those are absolutely crucial, but also through hearing people's voices and dealing with the ideology that makes us unsympathetic or just ignoring that. I think that Black Lives Matter did a lot to bring visibility to issues of respect was part of the essence of that movement, I think. So I think that there's so much going on. There's so many people who do care, a lot of projects going on. But I think that perhaps history can be very helpful in thinking about how the struggles now might be differently oriented. Nicole, what are some thoughts? Well, and I'm sure there are lots, but yes, you, you know pick how one. it goes for me. <laughs> no, I think that maybe I'm going to actually just let this stand on its own, not put my major commentary on top. I have definitely some thoughts that I think, Claire, when you and I talk about what mini episode we do that accompanies this, I definitely have some things that I need to own up to and address. So I will get there. I'm just recognizing a lot of assumptions I have about poverty and the visibility of it. And it's a little confronting. I will say I'm struggling a little bit, but that's good. No, and it's good to hear that. I know this that won't necessarily be a part that's recorded, but I just want to say these moments, Nicole, are so important. We can even like be hearing about stuff and then all of a sudden something that's very personally felt can just open things up and have one see things different. I think like hunger in America was that moment for a lot of people. I think that even with poverty, again, we can look at statistics, but then there's so much ideology around that. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your knowledge, you sharing your knowledge with us and helping us understand this issue more. I feel like one of your students, it's like, oh man, there's so much I just didn't know. And I want to continue to learn because as you're saying, yes, it kind of stacks on one another in a way I didn't really realize, which is, I love it. It's fascinating to me to connect some dots in my mind. So to wrap up, we're going to do our attention mentions where we just mentioned something that has our attention to kind of well, it can lighten up the mood or it can be a sober recommendation. No judgment. We love them all. So, Lori, you were sharing yours at the beginning and it's one that I love as well. So tell us about your attention mention. My attention mention. This is a new phrase for me. <laughs> Wait, I made it up. <laughs> but before you the show, you explained to me what that means. I right away mentioned the podcast, a radio program, Hidden Brain, which I love. I mean, I'm so fascinated and I love that there's like science attached to issues that are really important to us. So yes, I am a follower or a listener. So great. I want to try to quickly find this quote from the most recent episode because I also follow Hidden Brain. So in the most recent episode, the host interviews this man, Todd Cashdan. He's a psychologist and they talk about dealing with pain and like how pain is necessary to our growth, not like pain for pain's sake, but to like push through that discomfort. And he said, it might not feel good, but it's going to do good. And I was like, ah, I love that. 
I'll go. This actually, it wasn't necessarily what I had planned to share, but Lori, something you said, we'll see if I remember what it was, but it was a recent episode on Throughline, a podcast that Claire introduced me to. And it was the particular episode titled The Whiteness Myth. And it's really fascinating. It goes into, well, it's a really great story. It's an immigrant's story who was petitioning to become a citizen and philosophy around whiteness that he used to try to gain his citizenship. And so then they, of course, do what they do on Throughline, which is really then look at the history of the myth of whiteness. And so it was really fascinating and such a great way to tell that particular story. So that's really important. And I'm going to have to listen to that because it's very cogent to the history that I teach and the kind of history that I teach and matters a lot to like policies. I mean, even differential experiences during World War II between African-Americans and Mexican-Americans who were at the time categorized as white. And so weren't put in segregated units and were part of fighting and not just supplies and kitchen duty and things like that. So through line. Through line, yes. As a reminder to our listeners, we include all of our attention mentions in our show notes. So if you're driving and you're like, oh, I need to listen to that, stop your car and you can look at it later. Okay. And to round it out, I will mention this show that I'm watching on Hulu called The Parent Test. I think that's what's called The Parent Test. At first I was like, I don't know about this show, but it's actually really good and really interesting. They have 12 different families with 12 different parenting styles and they do these challenges to see how the parents and the kids do in these challenges. And you would think with it being a test, it would be like judgmental and like your way is bad and this way is better. It highlights the different things we're imparting on our kids when we teach with these different parenting styles. And it's been really great. And actually something I am getting better at from watching the show is emphasizing safety with my children and like, don't answer the door. Let mama do that. And uh, it's like, oh yeah, like these are important lessons to make sure I'm imparting on my little five and two-year-old. So I'm actually learning some stuff too. So check out the And you say to them, but pain is good. (laughs) If it's for good. good. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. This feels like an important conversation and I'm very appreciative of the attention that you're giving to this issue. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for your super valuable time. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working, and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks, everybody, and have a good one.